Hey, Church of the Beloved. My name is Abe. I am the pastor for our Wicker Park campus, and I really want to thank you all for joining us today to worship our sovereign God, though it is virtually. If this is your first time joining us today, I want to explain. Uh, we've been in a sermon series for the past few weeks on something that we've called the Gospel According to Exodus. And the reason we gave it that name is, you see, the Church of the Beloved, we understand that the entirety of Scripture, from Genesis and Exodus through to the Revelation, it is absolutely God's story. God's story of redemption for those who are called to salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, and by His grace alone. Now, this story of the Hebrews' exodus from the, the clutches of their Egyptian slave masters uh, to ultimately fulfill a promise that God had made centuries earlier. This is a story uh, of God's mission for each of them that we hope will shed a bit of light to each of you as you discern what God's story is for you. Now, before we dive into today's message, I'd like to ask that you join with me. I want to start with a prayer. I pray that God consecrate this time, make it a holy time, and consecrate this message. Will you pray with me? Precious Father, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I, I beg you, God, make this a holy time. I ask that you use me and use the words that come from my mouth to bring you all the glory and to edify your beloved children. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So, on Saturday, March 14th, the day after Brianna Taylor was killed, I have a feeling that her family woke up and asked the question, why? On Tuesday, May 26th, the day after George Floyd was killed, I have a feeling that his family woke up and asked the question, why? Just this past Monday, August 24th, I have a feeling the day after Jacob Blake was killed, I have a feeling that his family woke up and asked the question, why? In today's passage, thousands of Hebrews woke up to a cruelty beyond their comprehension, to, to injustices, to, to unwarranted beatings, and, and they probably woke up and asked, why? Bringing it a little closer to home for me, about 30 years ago, an old friend of mine woke up the day after her father had been shot to death from a thief who stole $12 from the cash register of their dry cleaner and woke up and asked the question, why? Back in 1991, on Good Friday, I came back home to visit from college to learn that the church that my father had served at for over a decade had turned their back on him and that we would no longer be able to stay in Chicago. And I, and I asked the question, why? See, there's anger, doubt, confusion. Th these are real and valid emotions that, that we cannot and we absolutely should not ignore. These are the visceral reactions to our current reality, our situation, wh whether it's impacting us directly or indirectly, whether it's impacting our family or our community. And these were the very real emotions that the Hebrews, that the, that the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were, were facing and feeling. 
So today what I wanted to do as I was preparing to this, I want to take a moment to talk about what the Hebrews, what their very real emotions were, and their very understandable reactions to a wholly incomprehensible situation. But to start, I'd like to go back a little bit to provide a bit of context, to tell the story, and, and remind ourselves of what these unreasonable circumstances were that precluded the passage that was read today, what the Hebrews were facing. So hundreds of years before today's uh, part in the story, the Hebrews had come to Egypt because one of their early ancestors, Joseph, he just wanted to take care of his family, wanted to make sure that during, they're going to be okay during this really uh, tough time. And, and so the entire family, about 70 of them, travel over to Egypt to join Joseph. And now Joseph, with the Pharaoh's permission at that time, sets them up on a nice piece of property, and for hundreds of years, they're doing well. They're growing. They're thriving. And then suddenly a new authority, new management, new leadership, a new pharaoh comes in. And this guy is extremely xenophobic. He, he didn't like people of different cultures, especially and very specifically the Hebrews. Basically, he didn't trust anyone that didn't look like him or think like him or, or talk like him. And because he was Pharaoh, he had all the power in that place, he made them all slaves. And he makes them build for him one of the greatest civilizations that was known to mankind at the time. And, and his successor, the person following after him, that Pharaoh does exactly the same thing. And so, so all these thousands of Hebrews are being picked on because they didn't worship the same God that the Egyptians did. They didn't speak the same language that the Egyptians did. They were forced to work for the glory of Pharaoh. This is the backdrop that, that Moses shows up to when he comes in to Pharaoh and says, as the movie Prince of Egypt so nicely summarized, let my people go. And when you, by the way, read the story in its entirety, Moses does say a lot more than let my people go, but I think it's a good summary, summation. It gets a gist of it. But I want to pick up this story uh, as Moses wrote it. And I want to start with uh, verse 15. And in verse 15, Moses wrote, Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is your own people. I'm going to continue this, but I want to take a, a little bit of a, a tangent because archaeology is an, an amazing science and, and it helps, I think, paint a fuller picture of the writings in this book. Be, let me be clear. Science, like archaeology, it does not endanger scripture. Science is emboldened scripture. And, and if you look at this, the archaeologists, they were examining the pyramids and the bricks that were used to create them. And they found that the majority of these bricks were interlaced with hay and straw within the mud to make them stronger. And these same archaeologists, they continued to look at the composition of these pyramids and they start going a little bit higher. And then they found that the amount of hay in the bricks as you start going a little higher started to diminish quite significantly. There, there are rows and rows with just little bits of straw and some stubble until you get to a point where there's nothing but mud. No straw at all. And 
really has nothing to do at all with today's message, but as I was studying and preparing for today, I just found this so fascinating because what that did to me was just, it made this story so much more real. This is not a story, it's history. But let's, let's go back to the passage. I'm going to continue on from verse 17 of chapter 5. It says there, but he, Pharaoh, said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. And the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. When they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And they met Moses and Aaron who were, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. There's some, there's some shady stuff going on by the Egyptians right now. Because the Egyptians, they're, they're just trying to make life miserable. They're abusing their authority and their power. And they just are, are making the lives of the Hebrews fully unreasonable. And so, understandably, the Jews are angry. They're, they're, the Hebrews are livid. And, and they're, they're cursing God through Moses. You know, they're, they're, they're so angry. They, they can't even bring themselves to blame the right person for what was happening to them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. The story there where God's questioning uh, what had happened between, with Adam and Eve. They'd just eaten the apple. And, and you see the same kind of blame shifting happening there when the first Adam responds this way. In, in verse 12 of chapter 3, it says, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate it. You know, when, when there's injustice, when and things seem to be going wrong, when, when someone's killed for what seems like well, no good reason, we look for someone t- to blame. That's natural. It's a natural reaction to a horrible situation. And, and we, kn- we need to understand why it happened. We need to figure out who did it. What's the, what is the reason, rationale? So here's my first point, which I know it took a while to get here. The first point I want you to hear and remember from today's passage. Looking for somebody to blame is understandable. And there I said it's natural. But shifting blame, not so much. See, finding fault, I I get it, it's not a bad thing, but be sure you ascribe it or or assign it to the right place. So lesson number one that I want you to hear is (coughs) don't misplace blame. Sorry, uh, this is a small point. I bring it up, though, because I, I want to feed into a, a different, larger concept here. I'm going to spend a couple minutes on You see, we live in a time where the promised land, where the upside-down kingdom or heaven is already here, but not yet here. See, Jesus Christ, we believe he established his kingdom by his death and his resurrection. And, he, and, and, and it will be fully put in place when he returns. But during this time between the resurrection and his return, Jesus, or the better Adam, stopped this cycle of blame shifting by deciding to take it all on himself. See, 
He who knew no sin, he to whom no blame could be assigned, took it all that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, simply states this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might become blameless before God. God's design for our redemption as his beloved is to finally shift the blame from those who deserve it, like me, to that, the one who did not, Jesus. So that there would no longer be any more blame. The better Adam, Christ stops this cycle of blame shifting by saying, I didn't do any of it, but I'm going to take all of it. So last week, uh, I challenged you all to, to understand that we're called to obey where and how God has called us to live our lives. I asked you to consider looking for, uh, live in such a way that those around you might pause and say, hey, look, your redemption is showing. That's what leads to our, our second point, which is this. Obedience does not always mean you're going to have an easy life. I want to turn to verse 22 of the passage that Andrew read for us today. And in verse 22, as he read, it says this, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and have, have not, you have not delivered your people at all. Moses did exactly what God told him to do. Moses confronted Pharaoh. He said, let my people go. And things just got worse. Uh, Small group, during our small group on Wednesday, one of the sisters in our group, she she commented that she didn't really understand how how Moses had the the audacity to to, to challenge God. She said, I mean, for her, talking back to her parents was unthinkable, much less God. That was just inconceivable. And we were looking at, at when Moses was telling God he didn't really want to do what God was telling him to do. Here today, that's even, it's even worse because Moses done lost his mind here because Moses is doing exactly what God's doing. And now Moses is thinking, God should do things the way I want it to be done. You see, the Hebrews, their foremen shifted the blame to Moses for their hardships and now Moses is shifting the blame to God. He, he's saying, you didn't do what you said you would do because you're not doing it the way I want you to do it. So lesson two, for those of you who are taking notes or whatever, obedience does not mean ease. Obedience does not mean comfort. In reality, more often than not, obedience is going to result in unease, in discomfort. Obeying God sometimes is harder than not. If obeying God's will and following Jesus' life as an example were easy and comfortable, 
we wouldn't be in the situation we're in today in this society. We, we wouldn't be in a world where the phrase black lives matter would even have to be a thing. Heaven would be here. If obedience meant life would be easy, then, then I wouldn't have had to worry about taking the L to, to come here to, to preach because I'm wondering whether or not I'm going to get the virus and, and bring it home to my wife. And by the way, honey, I know you're watching. I wore rubber gloves and didn't touch anything, so we should be absolutely fine by the time I get home. You know, if we were in heaven and obedience was easy, I wouldn't have to worry about buying more masks so I could look fashionable and figure out which ones to wear to match my outfit today. See, when the horrible things happen, when we, we, we absolutely want to look for someone to blame, and I get it. And unfortunately, we might come to a point where we start questioning God. Why? We, we might come to a place where, where we think the question. Why, why does she have to die? Why, why did he have to suffer? Why, why is everyone abandoning me? You know, I'm doing what God called me to do. It's so hard. Why? And that brings us to the final lesson that we take from this passage that I asked Andrew to read for us today. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. It provides us God's response to our why question. You see, for Moses, for the Hebrews, For me as well, the reality of our circumstances is sometimes overpowers the hope of our theology. But if you look beyond the blaming game, beyond the doubts, here's what we're called to understand. This is the third thing. God's reminders are essential to our redemption. Because if you read throughout this story of the Exodus if you read throughout the entirety of scripture, you're going to see that God is constantly reminding his beloved of his love, of his mercy and forgiveness. The writers of this sacred text, they understood that a key component to our striving to live for God, to live for God's glory is to remind each other and to be reminded to live for God and to live for God's glory. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 17, it says this. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. In 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, it says this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostle. Jude 5, it says this, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Throughout scripture, you see example after example of God using scripture, using people, using worship, even using communion to remind us of his mercy, his grace, his love. Because we forget. Specifically, This is what God reminds us of in verses 1 through 8. And here's the first thing that he reminds us of. God has a plan. 
In Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, God says to Moses, now you're going to see what I'm about to do. Because Moses had his turn. Pharaoh had his say. Now it's God's turn. Now is when the impossible is going to be possible because God has and always will have a plan. I grew up, used, uh, I used to love this TV show called The A-Team. And Hannibal Smith was the leader of the group. At the end of the, each episode, he would come out with a cigar hanging from his mouth and say, I love it when a plan comes together. Because ultimately, for Hannibal, there was always a chance it might not. For God, there's never a chance it will not. Because God's plan is the plan. There's no question. Moses needed to be reminded that the details of God's plans may not match the details of Moses' plan, but that's a good thing. And God doesn't remind us just that he has a plan, but he also reminds us that he has power, that he has supreme and sovereign power. In verse 3, God reminds Moses that, that he appeared to the forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and is God Almighty. In the original Hebrew, God Almighty is El Shaddai. So this name for Yahweh, El Shaddai, is intended to convey a characteristic of God, his sovereignty, his self-sufficiency. In other words, God is fully and wholly capable. He has no need for us, but we have every need for him. And because he is sovereign, because he is sufficient, because he has all the power, it is in my weakest moments that God is most potent, that God is most powerful. God is reminding us in these verses that he has a plan, and he has power, and he has permanence. In verse 3, again, we see that this is the same God that appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the same God that made the promises centuries before and is now fulfilling them. This is the same God that we worship today, the same God to whom we can cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. God's reminders are are essential to our redemption. And in verses one through eight, God is reminding us that he has a plan, that he has power and he has permanence. And then we come to verse nine, and God reminds us that he has patience. Let's look at the Hebrews' reaction when, when Moses reminded them of all this. In verse 9, it says this, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. This, this world we're living in today is at best awkward. You got natural disasters, killer hornets, pandemic virus, social upheaval. So I can feel you if your response to this reminder that, that we are loved and live for a God who has a plan and is powerful and is permanent. I can feel you if this is, if your, your desire is to not listen because your spirit is broken, because you're suffering the harsh injustices of our world. I, I can fully appreciate that this might be your reaction and your response because at times, it's mine as well. Because I'm weary. 
I don't like this world that we're living in, honestly. I'll tell you that there are times where I will turn to my wife, Suzette, and just say, come, Lord Jesus, come, because I'm done with this place. We screwed this place up beyond repair. Just come. But our God, our sovereign God, He does have a plan. It's a perfect one. He is powerful. He is perfect, permanent. He is patient. And God's response to the Israelites when they reject his reminder is to remind them again that he has a plan, he's powerful, he's permanent, and he's patient. And then God reminds them again that he has a plan and he's powerful and permanent and patient. And then he reminds them again. And he reminds them again. And God is here reminding you that he has a plan, that he's powerful, that he's permanent, that he's patient. There are going to be days when you wake up and you're going to ask the question, why? And when those doubts seep in, And when the questions confound you, my ask of you is on those days, please do not be distracted by the blaming or the doubting. You you can do that. But I ask that you on those days, do not let the reality of the circumstances overpower the hope of your theology. Because, Because God's reminding us through the word, through our times of fellowship, whether it's virtual or real life, through our times of rejoicing, through our times of worship, God is reminding you that he has a plan, his power, permanence, and patience. And by, by, by looking at our Savior, Jesus Christ, we can be reminded of God's plan, power, permanence, and patience, and we can find his peace. We can find his shalom. Last week, we changed our service format a bit. It's a little shocking to many of you. And I, I mentioned last week that life through Zoom and through YouTube is tiring and that fatigue in all this is real. Um, so instead of closing out uh, uh, with a couple of final worship songs, we ended last week our service with just a closing prayer and a benediction for our congregation. And, just, and we also cl- uh, took one last song out, one, did one last song out in the, in the beginning. And I'm going to be doing that again today. But we want your feedback. Tell us what you think of the new format because we've received some already, but we're open to more. You know, we want to know what will be beneficial to our congregation. You can email me directly at abe at cotb.life. Abe is Alpha Bravo Echo ABE. Or just email any of your campus leaders. Share your thoughts on the new format because we want you to be blessed through this. I want to thank you so much for joining us today and for being a part of our community of believers. And I hope that you will be able to not only be reminded of God's love, his mercy and grace through these times of worship, of devotion, and fellowship, virtual or in real life, but that you might also be reminders to each other of God's love as well.